This Dharma Talk was presented at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit austinzencenter.org. There's simply nothing like Sashin as the supreme practice and verification uh, in the Zen tradition. Sitting period after period the mind um, can't resist continuously begins to uh, surrender begins to settle into the present slowly, slowly it's only the second day but we give ourselves to this sitting it gives itself to us. <clears throat> We're celebrating Kazan Zenji's uh, teaching this week in the transmission of light record, but also... Uh, some practical instructions from his uh, <clears throat> points to keep in mind for Zazen, the Zazen Yujinki, <clears throat> describing Zazen. Again, Keizan says, Clear water has no front or back. Space has no inside or outside. Completely clear, its own luminosity shines before form and emptiness were distinguished. Our zazen is like uh, space. There's no inside or outside in space. So usually we distinguish like inside our body and mind and outside there's the world. But uh, from the perspective of space, there is no inside or outside. From the perspective of Zazen's uh, ground of mind, <clears throat> I... Uh, inside and outside are just ideas and um, flavors of experience arising within open space. <coughs> Zazen's own brightness, its own luminosity, shines before form and emptiness were distinguished as ideas. All this stuff that we see and hear and feel uh, is not something other than empty space of awareness.
and the empty space of awareness uh, shines on its own before uh, we humans divide it up into ideas like form is the solid stuff appearing and emptiness is the space in which it's appearing. Before we make those kinds of distinctions, it's just radiant light shining. <clears throat> and uh, in, uh, in the Buddha's teaching, there's these three types of wisdom, prajna, Three types of knowing, prajna, uh, the wisdom or knowing that comes from listening to the Dharma, <clears throat> which was mostly an oral transmission for the first centuries. Uh, later, it was written down, so we could include um, the wisdom from reading the teachings in this first type, hearing and seeing the Dharma. <clears throat> in it comes in words, and um, understanding what the words are referring to. <clears throat> it's a kind of wisdom. We can hear teachings. Like Kazan saying, uh, Zazen is like space that has no inside or outside. We can hear those words and have some sense of what the words are pointing to. Even just get the image. We can hear the words and then imagine how space, like this space in the Zendo, doesn't really have an inside or outside. It can't be divided like that. So we can hear those words, um, have an image of space, and it's a conceptual understanding. But the Buddha says this is a kind of wisdom. Shruta mayi prajna, that wisdom from hearing or listening. And then we can contemplate the, these teachings. <clears throat> Space has no inside or outside. Zazen is like space with no inside or outside. We can contemplate it, apply it to our own experience right now. <clears throat> can I open to the possibility that my own awareness, my ordinary mind, this present awareness right now, <clears throat> doesn't really have an inside or outside? It's not divided like that. It's just open and aware, temporarily appearing as things out there and feelings and thoughts in here. <clears throat> it's not really divided like that. <clears throat> so we can contemplate how these words that we've heard apply to our own experience that's uh, called chintamayi prajna, the, the wisdom coming from uh, reflecting or contemplating the teachings that we've heard. It's still conceptual, but a little more personalized, a little more um, 
experiential, even though it's conceptual. It's not just words about somebody else's practice. It's now applying to ourselves. And then the third type of wisdom the Buddha teaches, bhavana maya prajna. Bhavana means to practice, cultivate, but also means to become. Bhava means like becoming or being. So this would be after we've heard the teaching and contemplated it conceptually, applying it to our own experience, then we can actually directly become the teaching. Uh, This kind of wisdom is is like actually being like space with no inside or outside. This one's non-conceptual, but it's based on first hearing the teaching, then contemplating it, and then um, trusting it enough to just be it. And we might say, um, the third one sounds like the best. Why don't we just skip the first two? <clears throat> but it, it, uh, some people might feel that way, especially in Zen. We don't need any, any teachings. Let's just sit and, um, be reality. Maybe, but, uh, it's maybe quite unlikely to that, that, um, without having, um, heard and contemplated any teachings, um, that we can just be that way. The Buddha taught that these three work together and they, they go in this order. <clears throat> because it's very subtle, it's, it's, uh, we need to hear teachings that won't just naturally arise for us. Maybe for some they might, but it's much more reliable to hear teachings and otherwise the Buddha would never have said anything. Otherwise, the Zen ancestors would never have said anything. Dogen and Kaysan would have never said anything. They're trying to um, help us hear what they're saying and then contemplate what they're saying and then become what they're saying. <clears throat> so there's these three types of prajna. Um, and uh, that the Buddha taught, and then Kaysan Zenji brings it up in his Zazen instructions. He said, Buddha said that listening to the teachings and contemplating the teachings are like being outside the gate. And Zazen is returning home inside the gate and sitting in peace. And then Kazan says, ah, how true this is, what the Buddha said. So, <clears throat> he type, he calls this third type of wisdom, the wisdom of being, bhavana mai prajna, uh, he calls it zazen. First we hear his zazen instructions, <clears throat> be like space, for example, then we contemplate what would that mean for us, and then... Um, the more we trust it, the more it makes sense to us, the more we might be willing to then let go of the, all the conceptual instructions and uh, be it. Trust it so fully that we, 
that we are that we we know more and more deeply that we are that <clears throat> so uh, this is a prelude to today's story which is very much about this uh this issue of these two types of conceptual teaching the kind that we hear and talk about and reflect on <clears throat> after we've uh heard it we can reflect on it and we can reflect on it together and then we can um, become it <clears throat> the eighth ancestor was buddha nandi whose name might mean uh, the joy of awakeness the joy of buddha <clears throat> Buddha's joy, the awakened one's joy. <clears throat> he met the seventh ancestor, Venerable Vasumitra. Remember the wine vessel carrying fellow, uh, whose wine vessel had disappeared by this time. So Buddhanandi met the seventh ancestor, Vasumitra, and said, I have come to discuss the truth with you. Another translation says, I've come to debate the truth with you. He was a debater. Just like Vasu Mitra, uh, according to the old Indian teachings, was also wrote all these extensive commentaries and probably was into debating fine points of Buddhist philosophy. <coughs> That was the style in old India. So Buddhanandi is maybe another debater. The word that's translated as debate or discuss uh, is the same um, a Chinese character that's used to translate the Sanskrit word shastra. That means like a commentary, a commentary on a on some teaching or a commentary on a sutra. It's called a shastra. <clears throat> and it's translated as this word that also means to debate or discuss. So uh, Buddhanandi met the seventh ancestor, Vasumitra, and said, I have come to discuss the truth with you. And Venerable Vasumitra said, Good sir, if you discuss, it is not the truth. Truth is not discussed. If you intend to discuss the truth, then in the end, it's not a discussion of truth. And the Master Buddhanandi realized that the Venerable's truth was superior and was awakened to the principle of the unborn or the principle of non-arising. <clears throat> That's today's story. See how it's related to these three types of wisdom. <clears throat> and uh, the truth is not discussed, right? And now there's like four or five pages of Kazan. 
discussing how the truth cannot be discussed. So the old story, Kazan recounts, um, Buddhanandi was from Kamala, and he belonged to the Gotama family. He had a fleshy protuberance on his head. So the Buddha had one of those too. Like you can see the Buddha on the altar. As a, some might think it's just his hair tied up there, but the teaching says that it's a fleshy protuberance. The hair grows on it. <clears throat> so in that way, um, Buddha Nandi's has a, one of the marks of a Buddha. In debate, he was unstoppable. That's the kind of guy Buddha Nandi was. The seventh ancestor, Venerable Vasumitra, came to Kamala to convert people, and he promoted the Buddha Dharma extensively. Uh, Buddha Nandi stood before Vasumitra, who was sitting teaching Dharma, and said, I am named Buddha Nandi, and right now I want to discuss the truth with you. And Vatsumitra said, Good sir, if you discuss, it's not the truth. Truth is not discussed. And so on. <coughs> Buddha says in the, in the Lankavatara Sutra that, um, all, all his teachings are like fingers pointing at the moon. And, uh, Therefore, we shouldn't mistake the finger for the moon. These beautiful fingers that are trying to uh, express the truth more and more accurately and fully. Um, and then we just get mesmerized by the beautiful finger and we forget the moon that it's pointing to. So one might say, well, how about just have the moon since the fingers are so distracting? But again, it seems problematic. It seems that we need some kind of fingers, some kind of pointers uh, to help us see the moon because it's so, uh, it's such a hazy moon hidden behind the, uh, the misty clouds. We just miss it. It's over there. <laughs> so... We let the pointers direct us to the moon. And we might even say we let them direct us to the moon. It, from a gradual description, it will be we let the fingers direct us to the moon in these three steps. First, we hear the teaching of this pointer to the moon. Then we contemplate the, uh, this, this, these words that we've heard apply it to our own experience, still conceptually, and then we um, <clears throat> we just become the moon itself. <clears throat> so uh, Kazan says, real truth cannot be discussed, and real discussion has nothing to do with truth. Therefore, when there is discussion, it's not really truth. When there is truth, it's not discussion. That's why it was said that if you intend to discuss truth, then in the end, 
It's not a discussion of actual truth. In the end, there's not a single thing or a single dharma to be considered truth. Not a single dharma to be called discussion. Dharma can mean um, the teaching of the Buddha and it can also mean things. It's one of those... Uh, one of those um, Sanskrit words that has a lot of a lot of different nuances and meanings. <clears throat> so I think both ways work here. In the end, there's not a single thing to be considered truth, and also in the end, there's not a single Dharma teaching in words to be considered truth. Moreover, the Buddha did not have two kinds of speech. Kizan doesn't say what they are, but we might say um, that the Buddha had the uh, um, <clears throat> definitive teachings. Nitarta means like um, definitive, uh, ultimate teachings that don't need any interpretation. And he had nayarta, or um, interpretable teachings, that um, need some unpacking, more conventional, skillful means kind of teachings. That's sometimes how the Buddhist teachings get divided into two. <coughs> but here Kazan said, the Buddha didn't have two kinds of speech. For that reason... Experiencing the Buddha's words is seeing the Buddha's body. So we might say, all the Buddha's um, speech was from one perspective, uh, just words that are not the truth. And from another perspective, the words are like, actually, um, are manifestations of reality. They're not, the words are not pointing to reality. They are, uh, the, the expression of reality. You see the difference? They're, the Buddha's words are not about the truth. They are just, um, an expression of truth in the way that everything that appears, the sound of the, of the, uh, the birds singing and the trees being cut down, all these sounds are also um, directly expressing uh, truth. They're not about the truth, but they are uh, they are like empty space um, temporarily taking the form of sound. <clears throat> so Kazan says, uh, the Buddha didn't have two kinds of speech. For that reason, experiencing the Buddha's words is seeing Buddha's body. Seeing Buddha's body is verification of the Buddha's tongue. <clears throat> In the sense that uh, all the sounds emerging from the Buddha are reality. They're not pointing to reality. They are a expression of reality. 
Even if you say that mind and objects are not two, this is not a discussion of reality. So now uh, Kazan is going to give all these great teachings. I think they're really great uh, teachings and um, that you commonly hear in Zen, including Kazan saying them elsewhere. And then he's going to list them all and say that they um, that they are <clears throat> are not a discussion of reality, or they're not. Yeah, they're not about reality. Why? Because um, they're just they're coming in this conceptual packaging. Their, their fingers pointing at the moon, um, but Kazan's listing some really great fingers here. So I think for these first two types of wisdom, they're worth hearing even while knowing that they're concepts that must be um, directly verified. <coughs> and so here's some of them. Mind and objects are not two. This is one of the profound teachings of the Buddhas and ancestors that we've been talking about some. Uh, Mind seems to be divided into a subject that seems to be, um, feels like it's located in the body or in the head or something. And objects are all those the things of the world, the sights, the sounds, the um, <coughs> the smells, the tastes, the bodily sensations, the emotions, the thoughts. We call these objects of mind. So it's as if there's somebody over here experiencing a world external to itself. Mind and objects. And then we have this teaching that uh, mind and objects are non-dual, are not to. Particularly, this is the this is the primary um, teaching, the primary practice and verification of what's called the Yogacara uh, tradition, or the um, mind-only tradition. It's saying these things that we uh, uh, assume to be and feel to be objects outside of mind, these colors and sounds, uh, these the world of color and sound and um, <clears throat> an experience is uh, not actually external to mind, not separate from mind like space that's not um, divided into uh, <clears throat> inside and outside, as Kazan said. <clears throat> we can hear this teaching in the Yogacara Shastras of Asanga and Vasubandhu. Uh, many of them say, this is the key uh, realization where uh, a sentient being um, um, shifts perspective and uh, enters the bodhisattva path 
to Buddhahood is um, really coming to experientially verify after having heard and contemplated this teaching to then experientially become the teaching that uh, <clears throat> mind and objects are not to, self and others are not to, or as the Yogacara tradition often um, uh, puts it, grasper and grasped are not to, which is, I think, a beautiful way to put it. It's basically saying that um, grasping, holding on, is the, is, uh, the, the Buddha's early definition of discontent. Suffering and discontent is defined as a kind of grip, a kind of hold, um, all kinds of grasping, grasping this body and mind as myself, grasping uh, um, things as mine, and so on. So grasping is is not exactly the cause of suffering. Strictly speaking, in the Buddha's very first teaching, uh, setting in motion the wheel of Dharma, he says, what is suffering? It is grasping body and mind, or the body and mind grasping. <clears throat> Upadana, grasping, holding, attachment, clinging. This is the definition of dukkha, suffering. So um, the Yogacara tradition um, uses this definition of suffering. The Buddha's teachings are all about relieving suffering. So it's saying, let's look carefully at how this grasping works. It seems that there's a grasper over here and a grasped world out there. <clears throat> In other words, things that, that are, um, that are mine, but also out there could, e um, from the point of view of the mind, could even mean this body. The mind is grasping this body as mine. So there's a grasper and a grasped. And, and a, the Yogacara tradition is saying, if we look carefully, we see that the grasper and the grasped are not two. They're not two different entities. That's called duality, self and, and um, ex world of experience seem to be separated into two called grasper and grasp. And if you have a grasper, then there will be a grasped. But if we see that the grasped is not something other than the grasper, the duality collapses and um, <clears throat> it grasping is impossible. If there's no, um, if grasper and grasped um, collapse into one, they um, <clears throat> grasping is impossible. That's a teaching that could be contemplated, could be heard, contemplated, and then um, brought into zazen. Like the image of um, of a uh, of analogy of um, a boxing match. So there's two fighters boxing, and uh, and they seem to be separate from each other. That's why they can hit each other, and they can so they can push each other away, and they can grasp each other. Pushing away or aversion is 
is another form of grasping in the opposite direction. <laughs> but I've heard that um, in the middle of this boxing match where they're fighting each other, if if they both get too tired, the boxers um, will will kind of agree to rest. And the way that they rest is they collapse into each other. They kind of hug each other. I don't know if anybody's seen boxing. They kind of fall into each other and hold each other, and they can't fight when they're together like that. They're, they're too close to hit each other. So they can't, there's no grasping or aversion. They can't fight, basically, when they've collapsed together. So they're just resting as one. And then when, it's, when they've rested a little while, then they separate and start fighting each other again. So, uh, so Kazan says, uh, <clears throat> even if you say that mind and objects are not two, this is not a discussion of reality. Why? Because it's a saying, these words. They're good words. They're important words. We need to hear them. We need to reflect on them. And then we need to become them. So they're no longer words. So Kazan's pointing out here that anything we say is a little bit off, like a finger pointing at the moon. So uh, even if you say that mind and objects are not to... This is not a discussion of reality. If you say that it doesn't change, that this, like space, the reality of our unborn nature never changes, it's a pretty good thing to say, a radical thing to say. But um, this is not a, um, this is not the truth. If you say that words cannot be uttered or that the principle cannot be revealed, this still doesn't penetrate reality. Even if you say words don't reach it, that's still words. How maddening. If you say that uh, true nature is real, Essential nature is real, like uh, our Buddha nature is real, or that mind is truth, the ultimate truth. What sort of discussion is this? If you say that subject and object are both forgotten, like the boxers collapsing into each other and resting, this is still not a real discussion. Even if subject and object are both forgotten, or if they're not forgotten, none of this is the truth. Though you speak of guest and host, one or identical, again, this is not a discussion of truth. In Zen, um, we... Uh, Sometimes talk about guest and host. That's the language, uh, Zen language for 
like space is like the host. Spacious awareness is the host because um, it graciously um, allows everything to um, have a party uh, within itself. And the guests are all these experiences arising and ceasing, um, in this case, within the host. The guests is, is the relative conventional appearances arising and ceasing, and the host is the, is the unchanging, um, gracious, um, generous, uh, space that allows any kind of guest. So gracious. Kazan says, with this in mind, even Manju Shri's speaking of no words and no speech is not an announcement of reality. Neither is Vimalakirti's sitting in silence a discussion of truth. So this is referring to the um, Vimalakirti Nirdesha Sutra, the exposition of Vimalakirti important Zen Sutra, where um, the uh, the lay householder of Vimalakirti is, is almost like a Buddha in this Sutra, and is kind of teaches the Sutra, <coughs> and he points out the misunderstandings of all the, the Buddha's senior monks. Um, so it's a, it's a wonderful Sutra. And uh, in Chapter 9 of the Sutra, the, the chapter is called... Um, the Dharma gate of non-duality. Non-duality is a, is a, um, is a wonderful Dharma gate to, uh, to enter. The Dharma gate of non-duality. I once visited, uh, the Six Ancestors Temple in China, um, and there's all these, um, Temple gates in Chinese temples, like mountain gates, and uh, like usually a series of different gates that you that you pass through before you get to the Buddha hall. And um, um, one of the gates along the way in had a sign on it that said "Dharma Gate of Non-Duality," and you could you could walk through it as you enter, um, as you get closer and closer to the Buddha. So, in this um, Dharma Gate of Non-Duality chapter of the Vimalakirti Sutra, uh, all these disciples of Buddhas, of Buddha, are expressing how they would describe the Dharma Gate of Non-Duality. And it, they give great descriptions. And um, they're all fingers pointing at the moon. Um, so after they all give descriptions, um, Manjushri, who is sitting on the altar there with his sword of wisdom on the, on the Buddha's left, <coughs> and uh, he's the Bodhisattva of uh, perfect wisdom, and his sword um, slices through duality. They say it's this double-edged sword, 
So it slices through, um, through like existence and then what, so you mean that nothing exists? No, then it slices through non-existence. And so it, it slices through all dualities. So Manjushri, um, uh, <clears throat> after all the disciples of Buddha expound the Dharma gate of non-duality, then Manjushri, the perfect wisdom bodhisattva, is going to do it. So this is going to be good. And so he um, <clears throat> he says, with regard to all dharmas, with regard to all things, having no words and no speech, no explaining, no indicating, no consciousness, avoiding all questions and answers, is the Dharma gate of non-duality. Right on, Manjushri. And then he says, now I've, I've said my piece. Now Vimalakirti, um, now you try to top that and explain the Dharma gate of non-duality. And Vimalakirti just sits silently. <clears throat> the great lion's roar, the thundering silence of Vimalakirti. Uh, most truly and, and, um, purely expresses the Dharma gate of non-duality. That's one of, maybe the most famous section of the Vimalakirti Sutra. Words don't reach it. <clears throat> But even the story that Vimalakirti sat there in silence is still recorded in words in the sutra. So, um, so as uh, Manjushri said, um, having no words and no speech, he said having no words and no speech, and Vimalakirti demonstrated no words and no speech. So Kazan says, with this in mind, even Manjushri's Speaking of no words and no speech is not an announcement of reality. Neither is Vimalakirti sitting in silence a discussion of truth. So he's just taking it, you know, anything that we can possibly hold on to is that's it, um, is not it. Kegesan said, it is as if both Manjushri and Vimalakirti were confused. Even less have Shariputra who is foremost in wisdom, and Maldgayayana, who is foremost in supernatural powers, ever seen this truth, even in a dream. So those were two uh, disciples of Buddha earlier in the chapter of the sutra that expounded Dharma gate of non-duality, Shariputra and Maldgayayana. It's like someone who's born blind never seeing objects or colors. And I think I think he means, and then trying to describe them. A blind person who's never seen a color. Yeah, you know, red is like, it's really, um, it's, it's bright and it's, it's like fire. But it's just a description of something that has never been actually seen. Moreover, the Buddha said that Buddha nature was something 
that Shravakas and Prateka Buddhas had never known even in a dream. <clears throat> in the chapter on the Tathagata nature in the Mahaparinirvana Sutra, which is the, the main source of Buddha nature teachings uh, in India and China, very important for the early Chinese Zen tradition, this Mahaparinirvana Sutra, the chapter on Buddha nature, or Tathagata nature, <clears throat> which is um, chapter 12 in the, in the Yamamoto translation we have in English, the Buddha says, Oh, good disciples of Buddha, only a Buddha knows this Buddha nature. It's not something known by Shravakas and Prateka Buddhas. So this is, um, as you may have heard, that in the, in the Mahayana teachings that there's three vehicles, the Shravakas, the hearers, of Buddha's words and the Prateka Buddhas enlightened, um, through just conditions <coughs> without, um, without having met a teacher or heard the Buddha's words, um, are like small vehicle practitioners. And then there's the Bodhisattva vehicle, the Shravaka Prateka Buddha and Bodhisattva vehicle leads to Buddhahood. So often in these Mahayana sutras you hear about uh, these um, lesser vehicles called Shravakas and Prateka Buddhas. And, uh, and the Buddha in this Parinirvana Sutra says, they, the Shravakas and Prateka Buddhas can't see the Buddha nature. Um, only Buddhas see it fully. And, uh, so we've been talking about Buddha nature as, uh, the ground of mind um, in Zen called ordinary mind that uh, everyone equally shares. And that's the teaching even in the sutra that all sentient beings have Buddha nature. It's um, with no exceptions. In that way, it's very ordinary. It's uh, the true nature of everyone. And uh, though the sutra doesn't um, uh, explicitly expound that uh, this um, Buddha nature is our ordinary mind. It hints at it here and there. But the Zen tradition brings these two together and says, um, <clears throat> our ordinary present awareness right now, uh, before it's divided into subject and object, is what's called Buddha nature. And even after it's divided, it seems to be divided into subject and object, into grasper and grasp, and we have all this suffering, difficulty, it's still called Buddha nature. It's just not realized as uh, Buddha. So why is it that, that, that these Shravakas and Prateka Buddhas can't see it? They have it. The teaching is Shravakas and Prateka Buddhas equally have Buddha nature. But they can't access it. They can't see it. And the sutra doesn't say why. <laughs> but, uh, one story might be that, um, 
that uh, they don't have enough um, faith and devotion in the Buddha. Sometimes in these in these Mahayana sutras, when the Buddhas, you know, the Shravakas and Prateka Buddhas have a kind of awakening, they have a kind of clarity, they um, they have realized something. Um, they and especially what they realized is that there's no separate self. That's in the early teachings. They realize that there is no owner of this body and mind, and that frees them from suffering. And uh, <clears throat> they realize that there's no singular, independent, uh, permanent, separate entity called me that either is the collection of body and mind experiences or is the owner of the body and mind experiences. There's no self like that. It's very freeing for them. But like in this, um, like the Lotus Sutra, for example, that the, um, the Buddha says, yeah, you all know that, but now I'm going to teach something different that you've never heard before. And, uh, in the Lotus Sutra, the, these 500 Shravakas and Prateka Buddhas say, um, no, we have enough. Thanks, Buddha. We'll be going now. You tell your cool new thing, but like, we're cool. <laughs> Cause we got no separate self thing. So we're going to go do some zazen now <laughs> over under the trees there. You, you do this Lotus Sutra thing with the Bodhisattvas if you want. And the Buddha's like, ah, poor Shravakas and Prateka Buddhas. They're missing. They're going to miss the good stuff here. And, uh, in the, in this Parinirvana Sutra, <coughs> sorry, the Lotus Sutra, that's an example. They didn't have faith in their great teacher, the Buddha, uh, who's gonna teach something new. They're like, we have enough. They didn't have enough devotion to the Buddha. And same in this Parinirvana Sutra, uh, the Buddha, early in the Sutra, the Buddha teaches this no separate self. These five aggregates of body and mind are not yourself. And there's not a self that owns these five aggregates of body and mind. Um, and then, uh, then the Buddha started changing his tune in this Nirvana Sutra. He was asked, um, by, uh, one of his students, Kashyapa, not Mahakashyapa, uh, the Zen ancestor, but another Kashyapa, he was asked, um, you're always te- teaching that these five aggregates are not, are not our true self, but is there any kind of self? You never said that there is no self, actually. You just said that these, this body and these feelings and these conceptions and these habitual patterns and this dualistic consciousness, you said those are not our true self. Which is true in the, in the Pali teachings, the Buddha over and over said, those things are not yourself, but he never said there is no self. And in this epic Mahaparinirvana Sutra, Kashapa said, is there actually any kind of self? And the Buddha radically and controversially and, um, shockingly said, Actually, yes, there is a self. (laughs) 
and it's called Tathagatagarbha, the heart of the Buddha, Buddha nature. And this is what I call the Atman, the self. And then the Buddha says, all sentient beings have Buddha nature, and this is precisely what is called the Atman, or the self. Some some students of Buddha Dharma in India probably went insane when they heard this teaching. <laughs> but this is uh this is like this is not in the early teachings, this is a Mahayana Sutra. And it's an epic, it's like a thousand page sutra, it's one of the long ones. And um and it wasn't just some fringe sutra, it became I think in India it was it was circulated somewhat widely, but never became like one of the main Indian sutras. But in China, it um, it really circulated widely, and uh, maybe because the Chinese Buddhists, uh, it was it was already this new thing, and they weren't so into this. They weren't so. Um, conditioned by this teaching of no separate self, that when they heard this new thing, there is a self. They were like, okay, we're, we're down with that. I mean, it's in this, it's in this, um, legitimate Mahayana Sutra that was pretty early Sutra too, is like, um, the second or third century. So, kind of an earlier Mahayana Sutra. And it's not just this sentence, where the Buddha says, um, all beings have Buddha nature, and this is what I call the Atman, the self. It's like a major theme of the sutra. Hundreds of times the Buddha then starts expounding and, and teaching this true self. So, um, it's controversial, it's radical. What if this present open Awareness itself right now for us is what we call our true self. It's not the fifth aggregate of dualistic consciousness. It's non-dual awareness. It's not a personal self. It's um, it's a boundless, timeless, ungraspable self. It's not the root of suffering. It is the Buddha teaches in the Nirvana Sutra. It is, it is um, bliss. It is free from suffering. It's it's not changing. It's um, it's pure. <coughs> so, um, but the Shravakas and Pratika Buddhas, there there may be too stuck on the not self teaching, so they can't really open to this true self. That's one story why they can't see it. <coughs> so, uh, Kazan's quoting this Nirvana Sutra. Uh, Bodhisattvas on the stage of the ten abodes. So, uh, there's these 52 stages of on the Bodhisattva path leading to Buddhahood. So, in the Flower Ornament Sutra, there's called, there's the ten abodes, and then there's the ten bhumis, that's another ten stages. So it's not clear whether this is the same as these ten bhumis or stages or another set of ten abodes. But basically, um, bodhisattvas on these, on the path to Buddhahood, 
So they're not shravakas and pratika buddhas. They're like devoted to the Buddha and open to radical teachings. <laughs> That's partly what defines bodhisattvas. So, um, but in, but in the Nirvana Sutra, even bodhisattvas in these stages, um, to Buddhahood, seeing cranes in the distance are confused as to whether it's water or cranes. It's a little bit like an illusion, like a, like a mirage. Very, very distant on the horizon, there's these white cranes, and they can't tell whether it's white waves on a pond or whether it's cranes, because it's hazy there in the distance. Even though after reflecting on it, they conclude, well, it's cranes. Still, they're not sure. So this is a, a, a metaphor for even the bodhisattvas looking at Buddha nature are not totally clear about it. In the same sutra, the same chapter, the Buddha says, Oh, good disciples of Buddha, to give an illustration, it's like a thirsty person wandering in a wilderness and in his agony and delusion is unable to distinguish between water and trees. <clears throat> After he's got a better look, he sees that it's white cranes in a grove of trees. Again, a funny metaphor, but I think it's like like a mirage. I can't quite see what that is. And, and I'm looking for water, but it's not quite water. It's cranes in the trees. Good disciples of Buddha... The Bodhisattva in the Ten Abodes, being able to see a small part of Buddha nature is like this. So these advanced Bodhisattvas, even they only see Buddha nature, their true nature, kind of in a hazy way, uh, <clears throat> like a mirage. <clears throat> Uh, so, with the experiencing Buddha nature, uh, you did also mention, I think it was either here or through a text, that it doesn't increase or decrease. But sometimes in Zazen, there's a feeling that if you concentrate enough, the feeling of Buddha nature increases. Could you all hear that question? On the web? Um, you're saying uh, it's taught that Buddha nature doesn't increase or decrease. <coughs> it's true. But sometimes in zazen, it um, it seems like there's more, like there's a stronger feeling of Buddha nature in zazen. Uh, so it seems like it's increasing, right? So it's a great question. So we could say, um, yeah, we we hear this teaching that Buddha nature doesn't increase or decrease, um, and then in zazen we there's a feeling uh, that um, like the Buddha nature is growing or, or um, becoming more um, real or something like that, or we, we feel it more strongly. So then we, could, we can discern the subtle point in Zazen that, um, that uh, Buddha nature is not really a feeling, but we can, it's not disconnected from feeling either. But, uh, and it seems to be growing, or um, we fe- seem to feel the presence of awareness more strongly in Zazen. But then we can remember this teaching. It doesn't increase or decrease. So 
we might be able to then reflect on the teaching that could it be that uh, the sense of awareness, the fact that we are aware and awareness knows itself as aware, that is always the same. It's not increasing. But our conscious mind uh, is getting more in touch with it. And therefore, it seems like it's increasing. It seems like I've been just distracted all day. The awareness was like it wasn't here at all. But now it suddenly like opens the door and it's in, here it is in my face. But actually, it was always in my face. It didn't actually, it's not actually increasing. It's just that, um, that you could say that the, um, the person is getting more in touch with it. And, uh, and it feels like, um, it's more vivid and present, but that's actually just a feeling about it. It was always vivid and present. So it's our, what's, what's changing is, is the feeling and the, um, the sense of it seems to be increasing and the clarity seems to be increasing, but really it's not changing. Does that make sense? It's like the, our human experience of it is changing, but, uh, the, but the awareness is always shining, um, um, completely in the midst of every experience. So, um, so we hear teachings like, even when we're totally distracted and we're just having like a fantasy about what we're going to do next week, or we're having this, we're like, we're wallowing in this memory of last week. Um, we're like, where's the Buddha nature now? Or, or we're really in great pain and we're totally resisting everything that's happening. There's no Buddha nature here, but, um, all that is happening within the space of awareness, but the person is totally not in touch with it, right? We've lost the sense of this presence of awareness because we're so involved in the content that in Zazen that we're, we, we let go of the content more and more and it seems like awareness is kind of shining more strongly, but it's actually just that the obscurations are diminishing. So what's changing is the obscurations. The sun is always shining, but the clouds that seem to block it are, are changing and coming and going. Unstained mind. Unstained mind? Is a name for Buddha nature. <clears throat> it's unstained, but the, but the, um, but the thoughts and feelings seem to stain it or hide it. They don't really, but they, they seem to. Yes? Yes? I have heard that Yogan teaches that impermanence is Buddha nature. Yes. You seem to be teaching something else. Yes, yes. Well, oh, this could be a big topic. So, <laughs> so Dogen. This afternoon, of course. Oh, well, now's the time. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the Six Ancestors Platform Sutra, um, eh, where Dogen gets this from, says, um, somebody comes to the Six Ancestor and says, um, quotes the Nirvana Sutra. That Nirvana Sutra says over and over again, Buddha nature is permanent or permanence, um, eternal and unchanging. It doesn't say it once. It says it hundreds of times. It's kind of like, we might almost say it's like 
one of the main themes of this throughout many chapters of the sutra this buddha nature is is eternal and unchanging um and other buddha nature sutras teach that too so it was widely known and uh i can't remember exactly in the platform sutra but um somebody comes to the sixth ancestor and says um as i understand it the the nirvana sutra says that buddha nature is permanent can you um can you tell us something about this, Huenang, something like this? And he says, um, he's supposed to be illiterate woodcutter, right? So um, he's never read the sutras, apparently, but he might say something like, well, can you quote me the sutra? And uh, yeah, it says Buddha nature is permanent. And then something, I can't remember exactly how it goes, but the sixth ancestor says, um, actually, um, Impermanence is Buddha nature, which is often what the six ancestors doing is he's, and other Zen teachers like Dogen also take a widely known sutra, um, teaching and they bring up the opposite to help massage our minds into a more flexible, uh, realm. So, um, it almost doesn't make sense, this kind of teaching, without the context of knowing that in China at this time, probably all Buddhist practitioners knew of this, the teaching of Buddha nature is eternal and permanent. It was a widely spread teaching. And so it was a provocative thing in that case to say the opposite. So um, Buddha nature, um, I don't think, I, I can't remember exactly the words, but I think it's more like... Um, not that Buddha nature is impermanent, but impermanence is Buddha nature. And um, and then Dogen, in his Buddha nature essay, comments on this section of the Platform Sutra. And uh, my understanding, uh, <clears throat> not remembering all Dogen's words, is that one way to understand this is it's it's um, it's bringing in the other side of the story. It's uh, it's and it, I I would understand it as it's not denying this teaching that there's this reality that's unchanging, um, <clears throat> always the same, because it's unconditioned. Uh, Buddha nature is unconditioned, um, uncompounded, and uh, for something to change, it would have to be compounded and conditioned, um, and then and it's also then it would be a relative truth, relative phenomena. Are, are impermanent, conditioned, and compounded. And ultimate truth is, in, in various versions of ultimate truth, it's usually said to be, um, um, always the case. Uh, it's not a thing. It's not a compounded phenomena. It's not a conditioned phenomena. Nirvana is also uncompounded, unconditioned. Um, unborn and undying, even in the early teachings. And Buddha nature is in that kind of camp, the nirvana camp, <coughs> especially in the nirvana sutra. And so, um, but that can seem kind of one-sided. And also the problem is we could make it into some sort of entity, some sort of permanent thing. So it's not a thing. It's... Um, it's the absence of things. Like space is not a thing. Space is also unconditioned, uncompounded. Uh, so, um, 
<clears throat> but that's just one side of the story. What about all this stuff? Um, if subject and object are not two, then this impermanent phenomena arising within the space, it seems like um, there's these things that the mind knows, and the things that the mind knows, the colors and the sounds, uh, are impermanent. The Buddha teaches that, right? All conditioned experiences are impermanent. All conditioned phenomena and uh, objects of perception are completely impermanent. So, um, and then from the perspective of dualistic consciousness, we say the consciousness that arises dependent on the color and the consciousness that, are, that knows the sound, the consciousness is also impermanent. That's the early Buddhist teaching. Dualistic consciousness that knows objects, consciousness arises dependent on the object, and then they both cease. So dualistic consciousness is impermanent, and the colors and sounds and thoughts and experiences are all impermanent. But then from this perspective of, of um, space-like awareness, the objects are actually not something separate from the awareness. And the awareness, if the awareness is unchanging, then um, <clears throat> these so-called impermanent objects are just um, temporary manifestations of the unchanging awareness. Uh, and in their actual nature, they are actually nothing but unchanging awareness that looks like things coming and going. So a nice, a nice, uh, metaphor for this is like, if, if unchanging awareness is like, uh, a mirror, an unchanging mirror, all the, um, images on the mirror are constantly changing. Um, but what are those images actually? When we look closely, what's the nature of the images? The nature of the images is the mirror. It's just the unchanging mirror. So yes, they appear to be impermanent and constantly changing, but what they're really made of is awareness or the mirror. So what they're really made of is unchanging. Can you follow that as a metaphor? And this is talking about our own experience. There's all this impermanent stuff happening within our own awareness Yes, it appears impermanent, but in its nature, it is just the awareness itself. So the nature of each appearance is unchanging, <coughs> spacious um, brightness. So in that way, we could say this unchanging, spacious brightness is unchanging, and therefore all the impermanent stuff is nothing but the Buddha nature, it's um, uh, all the stuff that we call impermanence is Buddha nature. This would be one way to understand that impermanence is Buddha nature. All the impermanent experiences we have um, in the reality are Buddha nature, which is permanent. The true nature of impermanence is permanent Buddha nature. 
So that would be one way to understand uh, the six ancestors' radical remark and Dogen's comments on that. So it's it's a non-dual, it's a more non-dual teaching, because we could say Buddha nature. There only is this Buddha nature, um, the, this unchanging reality. There isn't anything else. And then the six ancestors try, and Dogen are trying to bring it back to our actual life. What about all this changing stuff? Well, that's Buddha nature too. Everything is Buddha nature. So we could say uh, Buddha nature is um, impermanence also and all impermanent stuff. That would be a kind of logical uh, way to describe this without refuting the the great Parinirvana Sutra, it's 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 bringing up the opposite, but it's not really um, it's not really refuting it, right? It's just bringing up the other side of the story, and both sides are equally true. Impermanence is Buddha nature, and Buddha nature is permanent or unchanging. Changing stuff is Buddha nature. And yet, ultimately, Buddha nature is unchanging. You follow? So, um, but it's hard to see this because we're so used to impermanent stuff. And then we, we look for Buddha nature as another thing, another experience. Buddha nature is not an experience. All experiences are impermanent, conditioned, and compounded. Buddha nature is not an experience. Yes? Um, could you like talk about how the Buddha nature and his Buddha nature's impermanence is connected with the concept of total dynamic function? Total dynamic function or yeah. is it Zenki? In Japanese Zenki. Yeah. Total dynamic function is um <clears throat> I think more it's celebrating the side of impermanence because it's, um, or you could say that um, if we want to bring in these two truths, the ultimate unchanging reality and the, um, the conventional appearance of constant change, or you could say the two truths, and the two truths are inseparable. And this term that Dogen uses um, from uh, Yuan Wu and others, uh, in the Zen tradition, uh, you could say, is the unity of the two truths. So Zen means um, totality or whole, wholeness, like oneness. And key is like dynamic function and um, constant change. So you combine them, Zen Ki is like um, the totality, the singular totality is functioning as multiplicity. And the functioning multiplicity is actually one totality. So is, is Zenki like the embodiment of Buddha nature? Yeah, you could say Zenki is the embodiment of Buddha nature. Or um, is, maybe we could even say, is Buddha nature um, emphasizing its, um, its dynamic changing quality? Because impermanence is, is Buddha nature. And, uh, <clears throat> yeah, and I think that Dogen is more emphasizing the dynamic 
um, changing quality of things. Partly because um, <clears throat> Zen in his time, I don't know, at least this is one story that we could tell. Zen in his time, especially his students, Dogen's students were mostly coming from this Daruma Shu, this Rinzai Zen uh, lineage that really emphasized oneness and um, unchanging Buddha nature. I think that they were kind of more on that side. And so in response to them, Dogen's really emphasizing the other side about the relative appearances. So it's partly, it was the context of the time. So now um, we in modern times have a slightly different context. We're not, we're not coming to Zen really hung up on and, and really into the teaching of this unchanging, permanent, indestructible Buddha nature. Most of us don't come with that background. So then we just hear the kind of impermanent part from Dogen. And we, we think that he never teaches the indestructible, unchanging uh, true self. It does, but not emphasize so much. So um, that's an interesting historical piece of the puzzle, too. Uh, that um, maybe those teachings are nice to bring in in present day because we're not used to them like Dogen's Darumashu students. And so luckily we have Kazan. So Kazan, as you heard earlier, right, the distinction between Dogen Zen and Kazan Zen. It's not a hard and fast distinction, but I think I would agree reading through a lot of Dogen and Kazan. Kazan much more emphasizes the indestructible, unchanging, true self side of things. So, so maybe it's back and forth. There are these Darumashu students that were into that teaching. Dogen's kindly trying to, um, to integrate the relative truth into their ultimate emphasis, and then um, any non-dual unity, Zenki, and then um, a few generations later, Kazan's like, We're, are we forgetting about the indestructible true self? Let's bring that back in a little stronger. So Kazan has that, and then um, I would say in modern times, Zen in America maybe because we studied Dogen more than Kazan. And, um, and, and we have the influence of Theravada Buddhism, which really would be like, not like these true self-teachings, um, that we emphasize much more, um, I would say, the dependent arising side, the impermanent side. Um, somebody was just telling me uh, uh, last week about how um, Shohaku Okamura and all these uh, Dogen teachings that he teaches is always emphasizing interdependence and impermanence. And uh, um, <clears throat> it's a kind of like, uh, it's also, there's other, there's other conditions, like there's this so-called critical Buddhist movement in Japan in the, in the last century that um, here's the stuff about Tathagatagarbha and Buddha nature and true self and it's like, that's not the Buddha's teaching. We should go back to like the Theravada roots. So there's that movement that influences Soto Zen um, in Japan and and therefore bringing it to America. So um, 
Sometimes I feel like my bent is a little bit like more bringing up these teachings of indestructible, permanent, uh, true self again and again because almost nobody does it <laughs> in America. And, and there, it's just all through the teaching and, uh, and, uh, I find it so helpful too. So, um, freeing. As long as we're really steeped in all experiences are impermanent, um, um, you know, ungraspable, um, conditioned, compounded, you know, ultimately unsatisfactory, and, uh, and so on. If we're really steeped in that teaching, then we can hear maybe teachings like this true self and not grasp it as some entity or anything graspable at all, but just, um, ordinary presence itself. Also to say, to use the term unchanging, I think is a little bit, uh, safer than permanent. They almost mean the same thing, but to say unchanging just means there's a realm we're talking about that's always always equally empty and equally radiant. That's all we mean. It's not some it's not a permanence in the sense of continuity. There's no continuity. It's timeless. It's beyond time and therefore it can't be changing. But it's not um continuing through time. That's the kind of thing that we have to be cautious about. Yes. So so far, um, you talked about the impermanent side of things and also a bit about non-self. But is there a specific angle which goes over the unsatisfactory nature of a conditioned phenomena? Does any of the teachers talk about that as a way to get to Buddha nature? As a way to get to Buddha nature, um, yeah, there is this teaching, all conditioned experiences are um, ultimately dissatisfying <clears throat> impermanent, uh, not our true self, not who we truly are, and not, um, pure, meaning like they're, they're, um, they're, they're tainted, um, versions of reality, something like this. So that's teaching of all, all, all Buddhist traditions would agree with that. And, uh, the early tradition would just leave it at that. And then this Nirvana Sutra comes along and agrees with that, says that that's true, all conditioned experiences have these four qualities. And then it says Buddha nature, which is not a conditioned experience, is the opposite of them. Instead of being um, um, unsatisfying, it is ultimately satisfying. Or it's, it's bliss. It is bliss. It is the, it is the complete absence of suffering. Instead of being impermanent, it's unchanging, eternal. Instead of being um, not-self, it is truly ourself. It is Atman instead of Anatman. And instead of impure, it is completely pure. It's untainted by um, <clears throat> by human construction. So, um, so we can approach that... Um, that uh, you could say 
complete satisfaction or bliss of Buddha nature through the teaching of unsatis- the unsatisfactory nature of all experiences by, um, because we aspire to, uh, to practice and verify freedom from discontent. So, um, <clears throat> so the more we remember that any experience we have is ultimately not completely satisfying, the more that can fuel our um, aspiration to verify um, that which is is ultimately satisfying. Is that the same as disenchantment? Yeah, disenchant. We become disenchanted with all conditioned experience, which is a tall order, because because we like a lot of conditioned experience. So it doesn't mean we shouldn't like it or shouldn't enjoy it, but um, at the same time we're enjoying it, we can become disenchanted by it. means like we're, we don't trust it. We don't trust our conditioned experience. Ultimately, we can, it's, not our, it's not our ultimate refuge because it's all impermanent and conditioned and it's, any happiness will end. So rather than just... Um, Resigning ourselves to the fact that, well, let's just make the best of it and, and, um, try to find con- as much conditioned happiness as we can and just try to accept it when it goes. That's, is actually a reasonable practice, but it's not the practice the Buddha is really recommending it. It's maybe a preliminary practice. Accept, accept, um, the changing life that we're in, but the Buddha's um, was uh, was on this quest for the deathless, even in the Pali Canon, the early teachings. I can't stand the fact that I'm going to die. Yes, I can accept it, kind of, but like, is that all it's about? It's just birth and death? What about, could there be a deathless? So this is the early Buddhist teaching. And then he, when he realized nirvana, he called it the deathless. And he said that it's it's unborn and undying and unconditioned, um, which is very similar to Buddha nature. I think Buddha nature is a kind of uh, a new sort of twist on the early teaching of Nirvana. <clears throat> so in that way, yeah, our the dissatisfactory nature of all experience can help us realize the satisfactory nature of Buddha nature by becoming disenchanted by all experience. Well, I'm going to stop here. Since this this uh, event is totally impermanent and it can't it can't just go on forever, um, <coughs> here it goes. Bye. See you all again someday. Maybe, <laughs> maybe, but we shouldn't count on it because everything is precarious, and uh, this afternoon may not come. But if it does. Um, We delightfully receive it.
And if it doesn't, uh, we're okay with that too. But we're, may we become more and more disenchanted with all this coming and going and, uh, uh, and open to the possibility that there may be a, uh, our, tr- our true nature is not coming and going. At the same time, our true nature is unchanging, but is also, um, is all this impermanent stuff simultaneously.